If you don't care about such motivations, this is a pretty good thriller, though not one you're likely to remember for very long. Shame on you, Jonathan Rosenbaum of the Chicago Reader, because he's talking about In the Line of Fire. Last year was the 30th anniversary of that film, and I think it's great. I remember it for a long time. Screw you, Rosenbaum. That's one of our featured movies this week. That, in fact, is our old movie this week. In addition to Hitchcock's Notorious, which is an all-time banger, especially if you're a fan of Alfred Hitchcock. Um, I saw that movie just now, actually, on uh, TCM this past week. Speaking of our friend uh, Ben Mankiewicz, I know everyone seemed to enjoy uh, the tales last week of the uh, Costas dinner with Mank. Hopefully we'll get we'll get Bob and Mank on at some point. Maybe we'll do it separately, but maybe, maybe we'll have them recap the dinner experience in their own mind. But I was so flattered, though. I got them really nice tweet from somebody or maybe it's called i know it's x as the platform what's it called if you can't call it a tweet it's, it's just twitter it's, it's, still, it's still twitter, twitter. it's still the same <laughs> garbage that's always been somebody sent me one they go hey I, I loved your recap it was very tolstoy-esque which is a hell of a reference he said you know inner monologues conversations as it was happening so i, I was very very grateful to x and the man who was on x giving me that very very nice compliment Thank i you honestly once again. loved it too man i honestly I listening back it. editing it i was like man i feel like i was at this dinner well, the key is that you were engaged and you were asking the questions that needed to be asked. Yeah. Like I had friends afterwards, like, I can't believe you mentioned the bill part. I go, that's the most interesting part. I mean, yeah. you can't tell that story without saying, well, who paid the bill? Yeah. So, and, and Chris was waiting. He was like, you know, yeah. okay, what kind of dessert? We got biscotti. Okay, yeah. what kind of biscotti? Like he's, you know, like, <laughs> I was so <laughs> into gonna, it. You're going to tell the story. You're going to tell it properly. So um, hopefully more dinners to come with Bob and company. Um, as far as last week's episode, thank you once again to Dave Carger of TCM, Ben Mankiewicz's colleague. His book is excellent, 50 Oscar Nights. Make sure you check it out. Go to Oscar, um, go to Apple Podcasts, I should say, and you can uh, rate and review Cinephile. Give us some love. Big news, speaking of the Oscars. Let's get to it. Less than three weeks away. So the first time I covered the Academy Awards was thanks to Ben Lines. If you don't know the story, Ben was working for the Academy, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the Oscars that you all know. And the job is you literally do like a live stream the entire time. And so he does like, you know, two, three hours of, of pregame and then the actual broadcast. And so he put in a word for me at this point. We barely knew each other. Like he had heard me on the Rosillo show, knew I was a big movie guy. I think we connected over Twitter a couple of times. And then I couldn't believe when I got the call from my agent, Nick Khan was like, are you sitting down? Like the Oscars want you to co-host this live stream for the Academy. So it's, it's all due to Ben. And Did that, he actually and, say, are you sitting down? You're <laughs> no, I don't think he actually said, but, but, he, but he, I think he gave something like to like, to like, are you ready for this? this like, it wasn't, yeah. It wasn't, are you sitting down? And I'm like, well, what's up? And he was like, yeah, um, I'm going to read it to you. I'm like, oh my God, I almost fainted. I, I feel like I won an Oscar. So it, it was obviously an incredible experience. And that was 2017. That Ben and I did that, and we won an Emmy for a category which sounds made up. I can't, I can't remember what the title is, but I'll find it someday. The next year, we do it again. I had a great time. Sophia Carson was with us. The first year was Troy Gentile, who is on that show, The Goldbergs, with Jeff Garland, who I love. Jeff Garland, we've had on the podcast. And when I mentioned the Troy connection, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. The reason I don't watch The Goldbergs, but I remember on the show, my, my cousin and Ron watched it, and he goes, you'd love it. He goes, Troy Gentile's character always wears like a Flyers jersey or Eagle stuff. So when I met him, I was like, Oh, it's so awesome that you're like a Flyers fan on the show. He's like, oh, you're from Philly McDonald's. It's a long story, but I do. But I love the Goldbergs, the fact you brought the Flyers and the Eagles. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. Then the next year, we had a guy named Weesom, Weesom something. What's his last? I can't remember. I don't know what happened to him. But Troy Gentile is still an actor. And Sophia Carson, who was part of our group, is now like a big deal. She sang at the Oscars last year. And I'm texting Ben. I go, can you believe we were doing a live stream with this woman like seven years ago? And now she's performing at the Oscars, a Diane Warren song? He's like, yeah. And what are we doing? We're on our couches right now. I'm like, exactly. But having said that, we did it back-to-back -back years. They went a different direction. These things happen. Maybe we're old. Maybe they want younger people. They want people who are better on social. Who knows? You just, you just, you, when you, it's so shocking you get the call to do it, but it's even more debilitating when you get the call to not do it. Like, what, what happened? Like, I don't know. They just want to go a different direction. But, but, but why? What did I do? Like, we won an Emmy. And then we got nominated for an Emmy. Like, we were two for two. But, yeah, they want to go younger. Is that, something, is that something where you reached out to them when you didn't yeah. hear from them? <laughs> Correct. Didn't hear back. And I'm like, this is long. Like, we're kind of like, you know, clock's ticking. And you're like, what do you think? And my agent's like, yeah. Uh, they went in a different direction. But here's the good news. Ben and I are back. And it's all thanks to the fine folks at Metal Arc Media. Because Ben and I were talking, and he said, listen, we should we should get the band together again. But I said, we're going to get Troy Gentilly again. We're going to get Sophia Carson. He said, no, just you and me. Come on. Let's do this for Metal Arc. So we pitched Mike Ryan, and Mike thankfully said yes. Chris Cody's in, and so is, to the chagrin of many, David Sampson as well. But I'm here to tell you all, we're going to be doing a live stream on the Dan Levitard YouTube page 
Come Oscar night. We are back, folks. For the last six years, I've just been tweeting on my basement. This time, we'll be doing a live show. I cannot wait. Sunday, March 10th, I believe, because the Oscars had an earlier start time this year, 7 o'clock Eastern. We're going to go 4 to 7 Eastern on the Levitard YouTube page. So three hours of pregame. Of course, Chris will be involved and other members of the shipping container. I can't wait to hear Stu Gotts' thoughts on American fiction. Uh, Dan, of course, will be there. Billy, uh, I'm sure the whole crew, Roy, Jessica, you name it. Uh, Amin. Uh, it's gonna be a lot of fun. So, by the way, back, I'm baby. just I just have a hunch that you're not gonna get all of those people there that night. Is Levitard coming? <laughs> Levitard, I bet you can get there. But you just okay. started you started rattling off Billy, Jessica, yeah. and I'm just like, uh, I'm taking the under. Okay, who can we confirm? <laughs> Levitard's in. You're Dan's in. in. I'm in. Uh, 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 Stu, no shot. Uh, Stu hates the Oscars. No, he just like getting him down to the studio on South Beach, not South Beach, near the Heat Arena on a Sunday night. Yeah, that's not happening. All right. So you and Dan in Uh Roy. Roy, if you ask Roy, Roy's in. Roy's in. Roy Roy won't say no to me. Yeah. Roy will definitely be in. I mean, maybe Billy Billy too. I see. I don't know. Like, what are we asking of people? Are we asking people to come spend like six hours with us or it's like no. hey just come pop in billy pop in let's just do a segment billy yeah. what have you seen from the oscar nominees what did you think of killers of the okay. flower moon i that's mean it. that's all we're looking I think for if we ask people people will do us favors but right. sitting through the whole so we're going no, four to lot. seven and then through the show seven to ten at least you know the oscars at least yeah. three more like three and a hook so i think we're going four to ten thirty it was so funny the original call that we had <laughs> i have you know, Mike's like, however long you guys want to do. And, and David's like, well, you know, as long as we can do it. And Ben's like, yeah. And I'm like, mm, how about like a two-hour pregame? Like, I'm immediately the guy who's like, maybe a little like, I don't know if we don't do three. Because I'm like, it, it's a live stream. Like, there's no bathroom breaks. Like, we're on the whole time. I'm not getting paid extra. So I'm like, you know, how about just Dude, five to seven pregame? That's why, I mean, you, I'm not going to lie. You had me a little rattled. Well, I'm like, wow, three-game <laughs> pregame. And then the thing. I'm like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to be the guy in the room. We're doing a call this week. I'm like, how about just two hours? Can we get it down to yeah. one hour? How about an hour pregame, six to seven? That's and when a, the Oscars is it, on, I'm all in. If we're doing the whole thing, I'm good. I love a good red carpet. So I'm good with the hour before. But I don't Correct. know if we need to start before the red carpet starts. Good point, because that's actually what Ben said. He goes, the red carpet will be 5 to 7 Eastern. I go, we're going an hour before red carpet? Um, I, I think that, that's, that's a bad call. I think we just okay. had that. We just talked that out. I think we need to ax that. I love this. I'm always in favor of less work, so let's hopefully get that done. It's so funny because I was... Well, we'll do the Giamatti stuff in a second, but remind me about how people don't like to work because it was really funny. Tom Hanks was on his podcast and he made a great point, which now that me and Tom Hanks share something in common, which is we're both lazy. Um, it's great news, though. The Oscars are back. I can't wait. More details to come. In the meantime, though, because it's mandatory, I got to do a little bit of Killers of Fire Moon. I feel like we haven't done it in a few weeks. You know, you were gone for Super Bowl one week. I wanted to mention to you, this is a uh, cover variety that I'm showing here for you. Marty on the cover, along with Lily Gladstone and Liliardo DiCaprio. And I thought this was interesting. I said, Cody, I like this. The question is, what was the last movie you saw in a public theater when you bought a ticket for? DiCaprio said, good question. I think it was Top Gun Maverick. I do not recall. Question. Marty, do you slip into public screenings for your own movies? Scorsese. I don't do that. People talk and move around a lot. I'm short, and there's always a big person in front of me. It's the same with Broadway. I can't go to theater. There's someone in front of me, and I can't see the stage or hear the show. I really enjoy IMAX as I get older. You go in, you can sit up in the back, you're sort of looking up. Regular screenings, I have found the audience becoming a bit more raucous than they used to be. But maybe it's always like in the 50s, when we used to yell back the screen. But it's very important to me to support films while they're on the screen. I just wait a while. Has everyone seen Barbenheimer? DiCaprio. Saw them both in the theater. That may have been the last theatrical film that I saw, but you just reminded me. I saw Blue Whale's Return of the Giants in the IMAX theater in downtown LA. Questioner, you bought your own tickets. You walked up to the kiosk and punched the buttons yourself. DiCaprio, they took my credit card and I signed a piece of paper. The whole thing. Later on, the question, Marty, how do you feel about the criticism that at three hours and 25 minutes, Killers of the Fireman is too long? Scorsese, I really don't know how to respond to it, except for the fact that many people seem to go with it. Some people say, I want to see it again. By the way, I've seen it four times. Not every film is for every person. Not every novel is for every reader. Not every painting. I don't know if it's something that will be universally accepted. This one felt right, and I felt that while I was watching it, I felt inside of it. Leo, some people have struggled seeing you play the villain, though you've done it before in Django Unchained. Paul Schrader posted to Facebook. He wished you took the Jesse Plemons role. What do you make of that? DiCaprio. I have no thoughts on that other than the fact that our intrinsic role in this was to try to bring truth to light. It was never a question for me how to play the character. This is one of the most bizarre, hard to believe love stories that I've ever come across. Scorsese, Leo ultimately suggested that he play Ernest. You have to remember Molly and Ernest were in love. Everything shifted after that. The movie obviously seeks to correct history, says Gladstone. As Addie said, who worked in the art department, you can ban the book, but you can't ban Scorsese. 
I mentioned all that. First off, how about the fact Leo going to get his own tickets? Like That's all I've been thinking about is Leonardo DiCaprio at going to his own movie and paying and just being a guy at a movie theater. And then like Scorsese being stuck behind a tall guy is just fucking yeah. hilarious. Like, like the idea of him just being like, hey, hey, buddy, you're in my way. But he is the 81 year old Italian guy. Like, I'm trying to watch the you know, he, Hamilton here. Let's go. He is right about like the IMAX and like you're looking up like there is maybe something to that, but I don't know. But I thought it was cool. You would think like IMAX, you picture like older people going, oh, it's so big. It's so loud. It's so noisy. Marty's like, yeah, yeah, give me that stuff. I'll, I'll take the IMAX. He's like, in my veins. Give yeah, me. <laughs> $27. I'll pay for the IMAX experience. It's like a drug. Yeah. Uh, speaking of movie experiences, I just saw Dune 2 today in New York City. Uh, we're banned from mentioning it. There's a social embargo, and I believe a review embargo, which lifts as of noon Eastern on Wednesday. So we're recording this Tuesday night. You'll hear it first thing in the morning. So I'm I'm forbidden, unless you unless Chris posts this at noon, then I could do it. But I don't want to do that. I want to post this first yeah. thing. So next week, I'm going to give you my Dune 2 review. Can't wait to discuss that. And it was really cool seeing it. Once again, Warner Brothers screening room. Like, I'm pampered at this point, man. I go in there like, again, you see a couple guys with their notebooks. I'm like, what are you writing? You can't see anything. Like, there's, like, there's no. Like, I'm bringing in like beef jerky. I have like a protein bar. I have a muscle milk. I'm like, this is the stuff I'm bringing. I'm not, what am I bringing a notebook for? Like, dude, I, I can see it. Two hours and 40 minutes of Timothy Chalamet's flowing locks. Um, an update on Giamatti, which we just got from uh, Laura Brandt or Booker. What new device? What did you hear him on this week? Yeah. So let me tell you about the Howard Stern. Thank you for asking. Well, so two things. I'll do the quicker one first. Josh Horowitz, whose podcast, Happy, Sad, Confused. By the way, Josh is definitely going to join us on the uh, Metal Arc Oscar extravaganza. Good friend of Ben Lyons. So he's going to be on the red carpet. He works for MTV. He's definitely going to be at the Oscars. So he will be our live presence there. Josh texted me the other day because he remembers, obviously, he was there with me and Ben at the Critics' Choice Awards when I approached Giamatti and talked about Barney's version. So Josh texts me and he goes, hey, one more here for you to listen to. Giamatti on Q talked about your movie. And I said, Q. And I looked it up and I'm like, oh my God, of course. It's like a CBC uh, podcast. For those who know, CBC is uh, you know, the NBC of Canada. It's, it's a major television network or radio and radio and television, quite honestly. So I said, of course, the Canadian guy's going to ask him about it. So I listened to 35 minutes of Giamatti on with this guy. At like the 30 minute mark, he says, you know, being Canadian, I have to ask you about Barney's version. And Giamatti lights up. He's like, yeah, yeah, of course, of course. He goes, like, I don't know if you know what a big deal it is in Canada that writer and Paul's like, no, I know Mordecai Richler. Like he's a, he's a really big writer. And, um, you know, I felt a lot of pressure doing it because obviously I'm not Canadian, but he's like, I knew it was important to, to you guys. And he said, I loved Montreal. He goes, great city. He goes, it was cold, but it was awesome. And he said, it was the first time I've ever had poutine. He's like, Angie, I was like, I loved it. He goes, look at me. You think I, I look like a guy who's going to like poutine. He goes, French fries, gravy, <laughs> and cheese curds. He's like, I pretty much eat that every day. Because oh. people don't understand how important food is on a set. So good. You're working long days. The poutine was amazing. He said, but I, I love Montreal. And he goes, I shot Cinderella Man in Toronto, obviously. I goes, I, I've been in Vancouver a bunch. So he's like, yeah. I'm like, all right, there's your Canadian content to Paul Giamatti. So that is what I would have asked him. So who knows where we get him on the pod. But I listened to him more importantly on Howard Stern, which I mentioned last week. But I downloaded the app. I listened to all 90 minutes. One of the funniest parts of it was how much Howard Stern kept taking credit for his success. Now, when Ben and I were talking with Giamatti, you immediately messaged, you go, pig vomit. I'm like, absolutely. And Stern says to me, he goes, listen, I feel like pig vomit was a big part of your career. Giamatti goes, absolutely. Because I was 30 years old. That was a big role for me. It was a juicy role. And Stern goes, like, I thought you should have an Oscar nomination. He goes, you were unbelievable. And Giamatti's like, oh, I appreciate it. And Stern goes, I've told you this. Because my agent at the time was like, this guy's going to blow up. Like, this guy's going to be a great actor. And he, remember, he wanted to represent you. And Paul's like, I do remember you mentioning that to me. And he goes, how about, uh, he goes, how about halfway through when you realized it was a real guy? And Giamatti laughed. He goes, it was when we did the, the famous WNBC scene. And Howard Stern's like, that's right. And he goes, he goes, you looked at me and you were like, man, you're really nailing this guy. I'm like, oh, yeah. He goes, hey, look, how'd you get the research? And I'm like, wait, what? Giamatti, this is a real guy? He's like, I, I thought it was like an amalgamation of like different people, like just, you know, classic. He's like, no, there's a real guy. Here's his name, whatever. He goes, the guy's dead now. Stern's like, you know, I still, whatever. He's dead now. I don't care. He's like, but yeah. And, and Giamatti goes, years later, I was on a radio show. And of course, they brought the guy in. They go, here he is. The guy you played, pig vomit. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, this guy's got a wife. He's got kids. I mean, it looked like a total. WNBC. Oh. WNBC. <laughs> We're gonna do private parts again. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch it this week. We're gonna because that, that scene alone, I watched it. I go, that is a great scene. It's Dude, he's so got funny. like he's got like strippers like on like the like the, on the, the vibrations of like a speaker. Right. <laughs> well, then that's the next thing Stern brought up. He goes, you know, shooting that movie. He goes, like I feel like you know, I wish I'd enjoyed it more. He goes, like it was so much, much fun with being with you, and they were so genuine. You know, I was like, no, me too, man, me too. And Stern goes, I had to because my agent said to me, Jim, I trying to reach out to you. He goes, what was that about? And I love that he's doing it on the air. And Giovanni goes. He goes, no, I guess my agent goes, like, hey, Paul Giamatti really wants to get a hold of you. He goes, I just did it one time. And he goes, what was it about? And Giamatti goes, your book. 
the latest book, I guess, Stern wrote a book. And he goes, I just, I, I was like, I was trying to get a hold of him. It's like, hey, tell him I really love his book and what he's doing. Like, it's awesome. And he goes, you, you only reached out to me once? He's like, yeah. He goes, my agent was like, man, Paul G. Mayer really wants to get a hold of you. G.Y. starts laughing. He goes, dude, it was one time. I was like, and Stern goes, but you have my number. He goes, I don't have your number. He's like, you know what? He goes, I'll give you my number. He's like, okay. He's like, afterwards, I'll give you my number so we can do this properly. He's like, but I thought like you want to get a hold of it. Giovanni goes, well, you know, speaking of people want to get a hold of people, it was my agent kept telling me Cher wanted to get a hold of me. I'm like, what? He was the singer? I'm like, yeah. And I was like, okay. And so eventually I got her number. I don't know. Sorry, sorry. He goes, Cher called me. Giovanni is, I swear to God, she called me and she goes, hey, I heard uh, you want to speak to me. And I'm like, that's not what I heard. I heard you want to speak to me. Like, I don't know why the hell you want to speak to me, but I heard you want to talk to me. Cher's like, nope. I, uh, and he goes, she left a message and I called back. He goes, I don't know why it was going to happen with it, but if I can get share my podcast, that'd be great. So Stern <laughs> brings up his podcast. He goes, so your podcast, you're going to be the first ever Oscar nominee with a podcast. He's like, yeah, it's called Chinwag. And when I met Giamatti and I said to him, the famous line, which you cringed at when I said, I've listened to you on four podcasts. And he listened afterwards because you should listen to my podcast, which I've now done. It's called Chinwag. It's him and this philosophy professor. And it's great. I listened specifically because Howard goes, you've had some big guests. You had Tom Hanks on. So I listened to Hanks. It was two parts, 45 minutes each. And it's basically just weird stuff that Paul Giamatti's into. Sasquatch, UFOs, ghosts, human nature over time, time travel, like all like, like just, just strange stuff that he's into. Yeah. And Hanks was great, man. Like he's an unbelievable guest because he's like really smart, intellectual, and he wrote a book last year. So it was it was really interesting. Back to your point about strippers. So then Stern again <laughs> brings up private parts. He goes, Hey, remember, remember that time on set? And he goes, Do you feel like we rehearsed a lot? Giamatti's like, Yeah. He goes, Betty Thomas, the director, was great. He goes, She would let me do whatever. We'd do a bunch of takes. He goes, You and me were having fun. He goes, Yeah. He goes, Remember when uh, when Jenna Jameson was here? <laughs> Giamatti laughs. He goes, Yeah. You think I'm going to forget that? He goes, Folks, it was crazy. He goes, The craft services table. And Giamatti goes, Where I spent a lot of time, as you can tell. He goes, Jenna Jameson walks up completely naked, like just, just getting food, whatever. Everyone's just like, like open shot. He's laughing. He goes, he goes, Betty Thomas, the director, to go over to like, hey Jenna, could you like, you know, put a robe on or something? <laughs> because she was that comfortable with her nudity. She's like, oh, I'm just gonna be naked, walking the whole day naked. <laughs> this, is, this is this is what we're doing at private parts. And he goes, Do you have crazy set experiences? He goes, How about man on the moon? He goes, You worked with Jim Carrey. G Mind's like, Yeah. And you can tell the way he said, Yeah, he did not enjoy the experience. And Howard turns like, he goes, different, right? And it was so funny the way Giamatti was very guarded. He was like, listen, he's incredibly talented. He goes, like, dude, the guy's like you wouldn't believe off the charts. He goes, but it was tough because he was staying in character. And he goes, so he's Andy Kaufman. He goes, well, that part was okay. When he was Andy Kaufman, that was fine. It was when he was Tony Clifton, it was awful. Yeah. And he's like, he goes, like, you understand? He goes, Jim Carrey asked Tony Clifton to show up with like rotting fish in his pockets. And then all day he's like throwing the fish in your face, like between takes. He had like rotting cheese on his hands. Like he goes, he was obnoxious the whole time. And Stern's like, man, he goes, that, that, that doesn't strike me as something you'd like. And Jim was like, no, he goes, listen, I show up on time. I want to get the job done. I want to go home. And and Carrie was not having it as Tony Clifton. He goes, How was the director? He goes, Milos Forman, I think he was annoyed, but he kind of like that was Jim's thing. Jim was gonna do it all the way. So he's like, okay, well, this is how we're gonna do it. Like he goes, You're not gonna say no to Jim Carrey. He said, but it was it was an odd experience, which makes me realize like imagine in life, like on the Dan Levitard show, imagine like for some reason. Dan was like a method actress. Yeah. So like if the show called for him to be in a bad mood, like he'd had a bad loss, the dolphins had a bad loss, and he was just a dick to you just guys. Walks all the time. in, like bruise it, like Ugh. You know, just angry off. Like, yeah. like how, how quick would you guys go? You know what? I'm going to go look for another job. Yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm done, I'm with, done this. with this. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't need this method acting crap. Like, Adnan's just purposely being a jerk because, you know, he's reviewing a bunch of movies about jerks. I'm like, what <laughs> the hell is that all about? Only only a Hollywood can get away with this stuff. But it was a great interview. The the funniest part of the end, Stern says a couple times, like, you got to win that F and Oscar, man. You got to win. G. Mine's like, yeah, we'll see. He goes, who, who, who's like Cooper? Cooper's going to win? G. Mine's like, maybe. And Stern's like, I do love Cooper. He goes, Maestro was great. That guy's great. He goes, Murphy? Murphy's going to win? G. Mine's like, maybe. Like, he's he's really good. He goes, Oppenheimer's really good. He goes, he might beat you. You got to win, though, man. He goes, Holdovers is a great movie. And he goes, and you're, you're freaking great, man. He's like, yeah. And he goes, I, again, I feel like I'm a big part of this. Like, I, you know, private parts. And G. Mine's like, no, no, for sure. He's like, I agree. No, dude, he goes, absolutely. He goes, I'll mention you. Stern goes, what? And he goes, if I win the Oscar, I'll mention you. He's like, you're going to mention me at the Oscars. Jimmy's yeah. like, yeah. He goes, he goes, give me a list of the Academy members. I'm going to blow them all. And Jimmy's like, what? He goes, he goes, I'm going to blow them all. He goes, imagine a Howard Stern blowjob. Who's going to turn that down for a Paul Giamatti Oscar win? So something to look forward to. If indeed Giamatti wins, will he mention Howard Stern? He will. He will, which will him. be a hell of a moment, Howard Stern getting mentioned. The bad news is this. The BAFTAs just took place this past week, and this is the British Academy Awards. Paul Giamatti did not win Best Actor. Killian Murphy won for Oppenheimer, but the big showdown is this Saturday, folks. It's the SAG Awards. That's the Screen Actor Guild Awards. That's the best predictor of the Oscar winners for the actors. So if my man PG wins Best Actor this Saturday, start the celebrations. Really? If he doesn't win, it's going to be Is nice. it that, like... 
correlated. Last year, four for four. Okay. Actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress. Most years, it's at least three for four. So I'm not saying he's not going to win. If he wins, I'm going to be elated. I'm like, oh my God, my man's going to win. If he doesn't win, it could be a little tough. And the bad news is this. Killers of the Flower Moon struggling. BAFTAs, Marty was even nominated. Lily Gladstone, not even nominated. Terrible. So this could suffer the fate of Gangs of New York, Wolf of Wall Street, uh, The Irishman. Great films that were not winners when it came to the Oscars, but we shall see. Again, check out Chinwag, Paul Giamatti's podcast, and specifically the Tom Hanks episode. It was really, really good. All right. That's enough nonsense out of the way. Um, might be, old in, might be in for a long one. With regards to? This episode. Yeah. So that I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> Mark Kamine is our special guest today. He wrote a book called On Locations, Lesson Learned from My Life on Set with the Sopranos in the Film Industry. It's a good book. Two earned pages. I read it in a week. But he joined us from Thailand. And I think... Maybe he was jet lagged or something, or maybe he was, maybe a long day. Like I don't know if you can boost the levels a lot because like you and I come in hot. We one got and a half speed. One and a half speed. Like, yeah, I think you might. Yes. This might be just on the listener, folks. <laughs> you might need to jack this one up a little bit. Good call. So when I'm talking, just keep it regular because I know I talk fast. But when Mark starts, just go up to one and a half. Let's give him a little juice because he does have good stories. Listen, Gandolfini's getting drunk on set. He's showing up late. He's got stories about Michael Imperioli. He's got like you know just just endless stories about the Sopranos, the writing process. But it's Energy wasn't quite there. Regardless, he's going to be coming up shortly. That's our wild card. Our oldest week in the line of fire, 30th anniversary, now 31st anniversary, what the hell, and also Notorious from Hitchcock. Real quick, because they're shorts, so I'm going to make them short. How about that? I talked to you last week. I said that we were going to do some shorts, and uh, honestly, it's one of my favorite things to do because it's quick, and it makes you feel like you're really invested in the Oscars, and then you've seen some of these shorts. Before we do, though, sideways, the long-awaited Chris Cody review. You finally watched the last 15 minutes. What do you think about Alexander Payne classic? I mean, like I said, swingers vibes, and I just it's it's it, it instantly goes into I'm gonna watch this anytime I see it type movie. I love it. I love like it just got like that '90s feel to it. You know, it's got what's his name getting beat to like what's yeah, Sandra Oh with the motorcycle helmet on, on Thomas Hayden Church. Brutal. <laughs> it's a great buddy movie. That's that to me. It was a it's a buddy movie more than even like a joint where it's just Giamatti. Like to me, like yes. that is both of them playing off of each other. That is quintessential. These guys have great chemistry, and that's why this movie's good. Right, which is part of the greatness of Giamatti. He not only gives good performances, but he always gets the best of the co-star. Like, it's like tennis. You're hitting the ball back because you're listening and paying attention. Like, How about the great scene with Hayden Church where he says, he goes, you know a lot about literature. You're a smart guy, but you don't understand my plight. Yeah. It's a great scene. Like he's I basically admitted, like, I, I got to cheat on her. Like, like I have just- a choice here. Like he's basically like, you think this is how I chose this life? Like this is like, <laughs> like I'm a damaged man. Like you, right. like, <laughs> like, and that woman is, I mean, let's be blunt. She's overweight waitress. He's still like, God, yeah. like, are you kidding? Like he's, he's like, oh, I got he it. Like his go. eyes see red of like, oh, there's, I can do this. Like that's, this is an option here. And then the scene of like Giamatti. But he shows up buck naked though. It's unbelievable. Because G- he's like dramatic. He's crying. When Giamatti, spoiler alert, finds out his book is not going to get made. And he oh. goes and like, it's an over the top scene of where he goes up to essentially like a, the wine tasting. Yeah, the and like thing, yeah. He pours like uh, the, the entire. So, but it's like an over the top scene. But Giamatti does it in this way that like, I'm believing that he's like, that, that he actually did this. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like yeah, that. What, it, you mean. what he does in that scene is over the top. And it would be Correct. like, if you wrote that, it'd be like, nah, that's too much. We got to make it more realistic. But just like the way he looks so broken and shattered, it's a great scene. And then as he's getting dragged away, he's like, his mother just died. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, like, throwaway <laughs> line to line. end the scene. Well, the line that I quoted to when I met the Craig's Choice Association, which you now you've seen the movie, is when he says, can I get a copy of Barely Legal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. no, the new one. I mean, that, that is an all-time <laughs> great line. And Giovanni did lie. Like, oh, that is a good one. The other one that is great is after Hayden Church is in the hospital and his nose <laughs> repaired, the visual gag, the the, the magazine that GMI is reading, it's like some teenage boy on the cover. Yeah. Like, touch all his buttons. And the, the look on his face as he's reading it, hysterical. Yeah. And as far as his acting... Doesn't get better than when she tells him that she's pregnant. His ex-wife. Oh, yeah. yeah, Oh, just an absolute punch to the gut, knife to the solar plexus. Like, he's like, the way he smiles, because he's been having drinks. Oh, I'm not drinking. Oh, you couldn't drinking? I'm pregnant. Like, man. That scene. Oh, the whole wedding. Yeah. Like, you just know, like, this guy's just melting inside. And then you see all the the cars turning towards the procession. You see him taking a left. Uh Ironically, in a burger joint, which famously he had had in and out after he won the Golden Globe this year. He's sitting there drinking that wine. On the commentary, which is really funny, 
him and Alexander Pinner joking that last shot, which again, which is why I like about it, because it's not a happy ending. He basically screwed it up, but Maya might be giving him a second chance. They're going to hang out. And that last shot, they knock on the door. Giamatti on the director commentary, which I listened to, he says, and now it, <laughs> and now answer the door is an elderly woman in her 70s. Like, like the... <laughs> Like the movie's built up to like, here it is. I'm like, no, Maya's gone now. Actually, doesn't know her address, and that's yeah, it. Yeah. The movie ends. He's like, right. you you can have this fanciful idea they get together again, but who knows? That's that kind of the true. way Alexander writes it. That is true. But I'm glad you finally watched Sideways. It's a it's a hell of a movie, man. And I'm glad you finally saw it. There's so much entertaining stuff in that movie. It's uh, it made me want to it made me want to be a wine guy too. I was about to say, you watch that, and you go, I got to get into this wine business. Like yeah. you're, you're becoming an owner like only the different colors. I want to like Although, I want to smell it first. I want to like sh I don't spin my wine enough when I get wine at a restaurant. Right, you just start drinking. You know the whole <laughs> smell. Oh, can you smell the fragrance? Smell the grapes? Yeah, all that it's stuff. Like, get over yourself. Yeah, it's definitely a very fruitful <laughs> thing to be into wine, which is why it's awesome that Giamatti actually isn't a big wine guy. Like it just fits his ethos like he did it for the role but in life he's like no, i don't know this crap come on man that guy just reads books last thing speaking of books on stern string goes i heard you're like a crazy reader he's like yeah g my like, he goes because i heard you read like a book a day he goes i used to i don't do that anymore he goes now i i've slowed down i'm old now he goes and by the way because i'm reading like like mystery novels like spy stuff stuff like that he goes but you used to be able to read a book a day he's like okay yeah sure he goes yeah he goes and you like highbrow stuff he's like yeah i'm like your dad was a professor of yale so clearly you come from an intelligent background he goes how many books take a guess how many books Giamatti has in his apartment he lives in Brooklyn. He's divorced. I don't think he has a mansion. I'm going to guess he has like a two-bedroom. 500 would be a lot. 6,000 books. Oh, my God. It's crazy. Because he goes, what do you collect? And he goes, books. And he goes, a lot of those books I haven't read. I'll just I'll be in an old used bookstore. I pick it out. So if I ever want to find Paul Giamatti, I have to go to a, a used bookstore in Brooklyn. There's a pretty good chance I'll find him hmm. buying books that he probably is not going to read anytime soon. 6,000 books. Who's the most avid reader you know? How many books do you think they have? Well, like how how many they had? Yeah, I mean, a hundred. <laughs> like, right? I don't have right, exactly. I don't know a I, lot I, of I people. Of, I don't know a lot of people with libraries in their house. No, like it's an old. I told you when my spring cleaning a few weeks ago, I got rid of like fifty books. And I was pretty proud of myself. I think I'm down to like you said, a hundred. Yeah, but like at one hundred and fifty, I don't have right. five hundred books. Right, I read the book, I get rid of it. Right. I think most people read a book. How about, how about reading a book in a day? I'm like, what? Is listening? What do we do it? Is listening to a book reading a book? No, you got to read the book because if if it, if listening is reading, I I, I read a lot. I mean, that, it definitely counts. I mean, that's not the same thing, but it counts on some level. We've had this like, debate on the show. Mike's like, I'm an avid reader. I listen all, and Dan's like, you, no, that's not. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of more with Dan. I think you need to actually read the book, but I do, audiobooks do count for something. Okay. Because then podcasts would count as well. That's, you're still yeah. having some sort of nourishment. Yeah. But I don't know, man. Six, I mean, a book a day, six, six books blows my mind. All right. The shorts are short, so let's get through it nice and short. Best live action short, the winner might be The After. It stars David Oyelowo, who is obviously great in the movie Selma. He plays a guy who suffers a terrible tragedy. It's 18 minutes. It's on Netflix. It's a little much for me. I, I went into it going, all right, what are we going to have here? And I was like, eh. It's kind of one note. Oyelowo is a great actor. He gives an excellent performance. But if that wins, I'll be disappointed on behalf of Wes Anderson. I'm hoping he wins for uh, Henry Sugar. Because I think, you know, he should have got one for Rushmore, Royal Tenenbaums. But the after, it, it tells a quick story. It's sad. There's not much of a plot. There you go. Night of Fortune. That's about a guy who is going to a funeral home to say goodbye to his wife. But he's a little bit overcome, isn't quite able of doing so. So another guy, he kind of takes a minute. Another guy intercepts him, starts talking. Can you, can you help me say goodbye to my wife? So he goes with him while he's saying goodbye to his wife in that funeral room. And then things get a little bit more bizarre. I will not give that away. It's 22 minutes. I liked it. The after, I'm going to give Two Maple Leafs, Night of Fortune. Again, available on YouTube for Night of Fortune. The actors on Netflix. I'll give Night of Fortune Three Maple Leafs. Foreign film, I believe it was Dutch. Best documentary short, ABC's a book banning. I got a screener for that one, so I'm not sure if that one's readily available. Yeah, but, I tried um, to find that one. I couldn't find that one. Yeah, that one is just particularly with your uh, your home state. They take shots in Florida and the whole controversy over the book banning right now of certain books. Uh, I really like the message of the movie. Didn't necessarily career for the doc because it was, again, rather simplistic. It was like kids saying why To Kill a Mockingbird is so special, why this LGBT book should not be banned, why this book about race should not be banned. I mean, it was, I feel a little bit too didactic and heavy handed. Again, I support the message. I do believe that there should be all these books available, readily available for people. I don't believe in censorship of books, but I found the movie as far as messaging to be a little bit heavy handed. The one that I thought was excellent is The Barber of Little Rock. That's available on YouTube, 38 minutes. Excellent. Uh, Dwayne Wade actually executive producing it. I believe D. Wade saw it and was like, I want to I put whatever I can do behind this. So that's why he, he peed it. 
excellent. It's about this guy. I saw it too. It was a great story. Yeah, great, right? Because it was, I, I, I see the title. Like, first off, good title, The Barber of Little Rock. Where are we going with this? And it's about Little Rock, Arkansas, and the economic inequality expressed and featured by all the black population there. And it, it's always amazing to me when people say, eh, you know, you just have to work hard, overcome your, your yeah. situation. Like, yeah, but you don't understand systemic racism or racial inequality. And they talk about how- Generational wealth. Right, generational wealth and not being able to get a bank loan. Like that's that's a real challenge if you're black and you're white, being able to get a bank loan, how that goes. And so this guy is amazing. He really takes it upon himself to, to a coach uh, an entire group of hairdressers and hairstylists to try to get them on their feet and help them because that's a profession you're always going to have as a barber. But also more importantly, starts fronting a lot of these people. You know, uh, a guy who wants to have his own auto repair shop. He need a $10,000 loan. Okay, here's how we're going to do the loan. It's interest-free for eight months. Here's how we're going to do it. So it's it's a really inspiring story. I encourage people to check it out. Mark Simon was a big fan. He turned me on to it. It's available on YouTube. Island in between. I'll get Barbara Little Rock, three and a half Maple Leafs. Island in between. I didn't really know much about this. There's an island in between Taiwan and China. So I found this interesting as a guy who likes geography. I had no idea about this. And the story could use a little more. Again, I understand that these are documentary shorts, but I would have liked a little bit more beyond what this island is all about. But it's Leo Chang is the guy. He's reflecting on the relationship with Taiwan, the U.S., and China from the islands of Kinmen, K-I-N-M-E-N, which is only a few kilometers from mainland China. And I did find it interesting just learning about the relationship between Taiwan and China and how they've been adversaries for so long. It's only 20 minutes long, so very short doc. Um, but I actually would have liked a little bit more background on it. But it is crazy to think about. Like These two are, are adversaries. They're so close by. Then there is that island in between, kind of like your point about the Midler with Kirby Enthusiasm. What's it like to be this person in between in the relationship? Uh, I thought it was okay. Two and a half Maple Leafs. The one that I love, though, four Maple Leafs. I hope it wins. We'll do a special Oscar extravaganza here on Cinephile the week before where I'll tell you what should win and what will win. But I'm really pulling hard for the last repair shop. I thought it was outstanding. Again, it's available on YouTube. I think it's got a good chance of winning. And that's a 40-minute doc, which is all about a music repair shop. And what I thought was amazing was it really kind of uses music as a metaphor for how by repairing these instruments, you can repair human beings. And each person tells a story of why you know, the trombone is important to them, how they came to this shop where, you know, they ended up fixing these instruments. You know, one guy's gay, had to keep that part of his life private, but then he comes here, he finds his own life, his own inspiration. The guy who comes from Armenia, fantastic. His background, what he's able to overcome. But it's four unassuming heroes who ensure that no student is deprived of the joy of music. And uh, I thought it was outstanding. LA Times, short docs, and searchlight pictures. And it's really beautifully shot, this nondescript warehouse. You see them like, you know, working on an oboe, that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's really powerful, really well done. The directors are Ben Proudfoot and Chris Bowers. Again, that's up for best documentary short. Of the four nominees that I've seen, the ABCs of Book Burning, The Barber of Little Rock, Island in Between, The Last Repair Shop. The Last Repair Shop was easily my favorite. So once again, check those out available on YouTube and the live action shorts. The actors on Netflix, Night of Fortune. I like Night of Fortune a little bit more. We'll get to our guest in just a second, but real quick, let's do a couple of old movies, including Hitchcock's Notorious. You know, for my money, it's a top five Hitchcock movie. It's his most achingly romantic. I think his best film, at least for me, is Vertigo. Rear Window is probably the most entertaining. North by Northwest is in that conversation as well. Psycho has to be included, but I think Notorious is right there. It's funny, I said to my friend recently, I was, I'm going to be talking about Notorious. He's like, oh yeah, the Biggie movie. I'm like, uh, no, the Alfred Hitchcock film, uh, that would be slightly different than that one. We'll talk the big movie another time. Uh, the story is in order to help bring Nazis to justice, U.S. government agent T.R. Devlin, no relation to Matt Devlin, Raptors play-by-play -play guy, recruits Alicia Huberman, Ingrid Bergman. How fetching was she? The American daughter of a convicted German war criminal as a spy. As they begin to fall for one another, Alicia is instructed to win the affections of Alexander Sebastian. Claude Rains, of course, unforgettable in uh, Casablanca. A Nazi hiding out in Brazil. When Sebastian becomes serious about his relationship with Alicia, the stakes get higher and Devlin must watch her slip further undercover. Once again, I saw it on TCM. I think it's a beautiful film. The performances are excellent. Cary Grant, I remember one time Stu Gotts, long ago on the Levitard show, was talking about Cary Grant. He would like, take LSD every day. Like He was like a, an acid freak. And I was like, I had no idea. I, I, now when I watch these movies, I'm like, he was probably high the entire time. But to me, I'm like, this guy was like the debonair, I mean, the, the epitome of the handsome man of the 1940s. But it's, it's an amazing spy noir. 
Bergman is fantastic. I wouldn't quite say she's never been better because Casablanca is even better. But her and Reigns, great chemistry together, as do Grant. And it's just beautiful storytelling. One thing about Hitchcock is he'll give you the thrills. He'll give you the chills. He'll give you all the suspense. That's why he was the master of suspense. But I thought it was pretty impressive what he was able to do by stretching himself a little bit. Um, His biographer, Donald Spoto, once said, Notorious is, in fact, Alfred Hitchcock's first attempt at the age of 46 to bring his talents to the creation of a serious love story. And it's a story of two men in love with Ingrid Bergman to only have been made at this stage of his life. In 2006, Notorious was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Came way back in 1946, but like I said, it's a, it's a great, great film. Official selection, by the way, 1946, Cannes Film Festival, made a lot of money overseas as well as domestic. And uh, one more blurb here. I want to mention Bosley Crowther of the New York Times. Mr. Hecht has written and Mr. Hitchcock has directed in brilliant style a romantic melodrama which is just about as thrilling as they come. Velvet smooth and dramatic action, sharp and sure in its characters, and heavily charged with the intensity of warm emotional appeal. It also features just a beautiful ending. And a matter of fact, if you look at as far as Metacritic is concerned, I'm more of a Rotten Tomatoes guy, but as of January of last year, Notorious is one of only nine films that has a 100. That's a perfect score on the movie critic aggregator website, Metacritic. The two other Hitchcock films, by the way, Vertigo and Rear Window, are also on that list. Notorious Patrick Hitchcock O'Connell's favorite of her father's pictures. But that, what a perfect film. She told her father's biographer, Charlotte Chandler, the more I see Notorious, the more I like it. Claude Rains was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and Ben Hecht was nominated for an Academy Award for Writing Original Screenplay. In case you don't know, Hitchcock never won Best Director at the Academy Awards, which is insane considering he is one of the greatest directors, perhaps the greatest director of all time. And lastly, Film critic Roger Ebert included Notorious and his 10 greatest films of all time list in 1991, citing it as his favorite of Hitchcock's films. Roger Ebert's favorite Hitchcock movie and Entertainment Weekly voted number 66 on their list of the greatest films of all time. If you've never seen it, check out Notorious. It's awesome. Not nearly as awesome, but still great. In the line of fire. That's right. Clint Eastwood getting after it. You've got a rendezvous with my ass, mother effer. All-time great line by Clint. That one came out in 1993. What I remember in the line of fire was it was awfully entertaining. So I said, let me go watch it again. It was on one of my many cable channels that I pay a lot of money to direct TV for. The story, in case you're curious, a Secret Service agent is taunted by calls from a would-be killer who has detailed information about the agent, including the fact he failed to save President John F. Kennedy from assassination. The caller is revealed as an ex-CIA assassin, and the agent who is investigating a threat to the current president is determined not to let history repeat itself. Always shocking when a thriller like this gets multiple Academy Award nominations, especially for these categories. Best Supporting Actor, John Malkovich, is awesome in the movie. He plays an outstanding villain. He's so creepy and so insidious the way he gets at Clint and taunting him and teasing him until one scene he finally just explodes when he says, I want some goddamn respect. Crazy. The movie made $187 million at the box office. It was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay. Shout out to Jeff McGuire. Again, movies like this, a thriller getting nominated for Best Screenplay, awfully rare. Malkovich was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and he's honestly unforgettable in the movie. I think he's an outstanding villain, as he is so often in his movies. But of course, Clint Eastwood's playing Clint Eastwood. I mean, it's an expertly crafted thriller, terrific climax, a little hokey at times, a couple cheesy scenes, I will admit, but Seeing him in Rene Russo, Rene Russo, man, 90s Rene Russo, can't beat her also. Directed by Wolfgang Peterson, people know him from Air Force One as well, but I think it's uh, it's a very entertaining thriller, definitely makes me feel like I'm watching a 90s movie, which is both good and bad, came out back in July of 93, but what I like about it is that it's a modern day thriller, Clint is trying to stop Malcolm from assassinating the president, but he's also dealing with what happened from the past, you know, how do you, how do you, solve the future by solving the past and he has to deal with the guilt and the frustration that he feels that he could have saved JFK and now he cannot have another dead president on his watch. Great chemistry with Rene Russo, especially that scene where he's watching her walk away and he says if she looks back she's interested and she looks back while he's eating the ice cream. Really good script and really fun movie. If you're looking for a good thriller, go watch In the Line of Fire. Gripping, gut-wrenching thriller from Wolfgang Peters. All right, that's your new, that's your old. Notorious gets four eight beliefs in the line of fire, three and a half eight beliefs. Now it's time for a special guest.
Well, what a pleasure bringing Mark Kamon, who's written an excellent book. It's called On Locations, Lessons Learned from My Life on Set with the Sopranos and in the film industry. Mark is also the executive producer of the Mike, uh, of the White Lotus. What's it? The Mike Lotus Show. But it is the White Lotus, which, of course, Mike White is a big part of. Mike wrote the forward to it, wrote a nice little blurb on the back as well. So it's uh, really cool to be able to talk to Mark today because everyone is talking about the Sopranos of the 25th anniversary. So first and foremost, Mark, thanks for joining us from Thailand. How are things going on season three of the, the White Lotus? We are into our second week of filming. Got a long way to go, but uh, <laughs> it's exciting. We have a bigger cast than ever this year. Uh, numbers and um, and a bigger show than ever. As Mike said, it's kind of supersized. Yeah. We're going to be all over the place in Thailand, and you know, it's exciting. It's great. It- it's fantastic. It's great for you guys. Let's get into the book, which is fantastic. What I really liked about it was that you wove in personal anecdotes with stories from the Sopranos and it really made it clear how much of a, a love you have for writing. And the fact I had no idea you worked as like an editor, you know, you, you've reviewed so many books and such. So it's really, really cool to see that side of you and also just learn so much about location managing, what a tough job it is, trying to work up the chain, um, just mm-hmm. working under David, what that was like. Um, let's start with, with Gandolfini, obviously, because he's such a giant figure on the show. Um, yeah. You know, he's such a brilliant actor and your interactions with him were pretty cool. Like he seemed like a nice guy, a little shy at times, but like he kind of had his crew that he piled around with, which you weren't necessarily a part of. But what was it like Definitely being with not. a guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And there was the stories that are told like guys who, who were basically got to hang on mainly because they were friends with Jim yeah. and they weren't necessarily successful on the show. And eventually they got rid of them. But yes. the point yeah. is with Jim, it's like, how do you reconcile the fact the guy was so brilliant and seemed so genuinely sincere and yet really cost the team a lot like the, the amount of times that you guys had to miss locations or, or miss shooting days like Edie falco visibly frustrated like she comes on set ready to go man she's a total pro and this guy doesn't even show up sometimes because he's out getting drunk at high partying it up like how do you how do you balance those two sides of like one is this genius actor but one is he's a real pain well you know he definitely had his moments when he, he didn't show up and he he I, I look, I, I didn't, as you said, I, I didn't hang around with him. I didn't really know him except for the onset interactions and occasional after work, um, bar or, or party. But, um, you know, he, he I, I mean, it's not unusual that a lot of really extremely talented people have, um, a side that's, you know, that's troubled and maybe that, adds to their um power you know their understanding of humanity and stuff i mean he you know i i didn't party with him and i don't know what he did and i it's actually you know in the book you know i mean clearly i i drank like most of the film crews Mm -hmm. ever anytime even today and um he did and and sometimes he got into trouble because of that um and uh you know it was it was occasional it wasn't non-stop but it was you know it became it it grew a lot i'd say over the seasons and and it was unfortunate but it, it was certainly tolerable for hbo and everyone else because he was so crucial and so great um and uh and it it also is really a small i mean it's a small part of his kind of legacy and and his um and the book you know it's it i mean i don't you know it it, people sort of sensationalize stuff like that and i and i by no means like a public person but i've had a taste a small taste of what happens and what gets blown out of proportion you know, it's mentioned in the book there, you know, and, and I, for, in my case, it, it was at least in the telling of it, it was more of interest to me because I tried to tell this story from sort of the middle of the pack of a film production. And mm-hmm. that's where I was at the time. And, you know, these stories are usually told by or from the point of view or with the assistance of or about actors or directors or you know, and and that was not my goal. So, to the extent that occasionally those um, incidents, you know, had, were something that production had to deal with, I was interested in it. And um, and beyond that, I think 
it's clear in the book and you know that he was a great guy incredibly generous and um, right. and a great actor and that's really the bigger part of him i think yeah i like that you told the story as well when he famously got that raise after things got contentious with him in hbo he gave out a significant amount of money to other co-stars and will get gifts yeah. to the crew david chase as well so it's important to note that and he was very apologetic when these situations would happen he would feel terrible about it and try to make amends as much as he could and, uh, what and he would he would beat himself up about it. You know, like right. he was, no one felt worse than him about it. So, right. yeah, and that was all very apparent, you know, when you were there. This is a pretty funny story involving you, Jim and Josh, late in the book. He says, to that early day internet originated past him recalling silly sounding sexual nomenclature and then providing their unthinkably intricate anatomical iterations. I recall Jim coming out with pink sock when I haven't until that moment heard. What are we talking <laughs> about here? <laughs> what that what that thing meant oh, sheesh, you know um can i say yeah of course it's a podcast <laughs> i mean it Mark. was some <laughs> it was some kind of anal sex related <laughs> result but um you know it was such a common game i mean at that in that early internet days i mean it was just all over the set it was it was I, I got started to hear those terms way before Jim said them, like, you know, in those years, you know, it was just like a thing that people drove around in the van. You're always driving around in the van scouting. And it was, it was like, you know, you would hear the dirty Sanchez and all these, you know, like reverse cowboy. I mean, I was like 45 or whatever, 50 years old and I was getting an education. <laughs> <laughs> sexual <laughs> positions um so the, you know that and and to and that was very um I, it's probably you're probably not allowed to do it anymore on film shoots you know i mean if someone drove around in the van saying those things we'd probably all get fired but um and you know in those days it was like you talk about that stuff and and you know i, I mean <laughs> there's obviously been a lot of issues in the film and the world community and, and um, you know, with the Me Too movement and stuff that makes that a little dicier now. Right. But this but is great because you said, when no we one noticed, hesitated. <laughs> right. Yeah. When we noticed Josh exchanging looks at one of the bartenders, Jim expands on the topic by asking him to tell us what he'd do to her if given the chance. And Josh, wanting to provide yes. Jim with a bit of entertainment, goes at length into extremely stark sexual choreography. After this elaborate effort, he glances down at his phone and realizes he has either pocket dialed or not hung up on his girlfriend who works in the show, too, but it's not up yeah. north with us. He says, oh, shit, takes his phone, walks into the bar, coming back later to inform us he no longer has a girlfriend, though I hear a few days later yeah. he has smoothed his way back into the relationship. Yeah, yeah, Josh did, he did come back in very pale looking and <laughs> I think quickly ordered another much stronger drink. Yeah. I like this line too, that you make a point about the Sopranos, how critical you have to give the credit to, to David Chase and really just a few others. The cast doesn't have much range. Once you move beyond Jim and Edie's magical mutability and the couple of co-stars who have similar reach and intelligence, Michael Imperioli, Andrea DiMatteo, who plays Christopher's girlfriend, Adriana LaServa, among the regulars who have real range. I think it's a good point. Like the cast is great. But they were great for those roles. You wouldn't necessarily insert yes. them in many other things, right? And I, I think you could talk about Tony Sirico or uh, you know, Bobby Bacala, a bunch of these other actors. That, that doesn't, I don't think it's discrediting them, but they didn't have the range that those four specifically had. Yeah, I mean, look, there's the, Hollywood is history is full of great character actors who played a certain way. And I think that, you know, David and the casting director, George Ann Walken, um, uh, you know, found those people and made great use of them and perfect use of them. And, right. and, and um, you know, some, I mean, some of them, I think, less well-known or even really novice actors, um, you know, sh showed surprising, you know, sort of range. But a lot of them, I think, you know, did the thing they did, like just superbly, and and got deserved credit for it um, with the show. And yeah, yeah. To specific to the job of the location manager, great story. But the time I, I mean, I have any big surprise who remembers this scene at a funeral home location. 
and the owner overhears a rehearsal of a line being uttered by Junior Soprano, played by Dominic Cianese, but the old woman in the casket having given him his first hand job. The owner has just told Mike it's a family business. You can't say that kind of thing about a corpse in this establishment. Mike has already voiced the crucial counter-argument. Script-wise, the action is happening in New Jersey. We won't identify the location by name. It's fiction. The owner doesn't care, telling Mike he won't let us shoot that line in his place. I tell Mike to call Eileen. He connects with David, who starts to improvise lines over the phone. Eventually, David decides Junior should say she had great legs. Mike writes it down, gets off the phone, gets the owner's okay, relays the line to the director and script supervisor, and the company continues to set up for the shot. Before the camera rolls, David calls Mike back and says, fuck it. Either he lets Dominic say the line the way it's written, or we leave. The owner won't budge, and that's that. The crew loads up the trucks, and the scene does not get shot. The art department will toss up a few walls at our stage, add a bunch of flowers in a casket, and the line will stay in, adding unanticipated set costs and shooting hours. I feel somewhat at fault and make sure from then on we're up front with the location owners about the racy, racist, and sexist content in the scripts. I was amazed that the funeral director was that offended. Like, as you said, it's not the location of your place. It's a TV show, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's, well, I mean, and Sopranos almost more than anything I could think of, you know, sort of drew forth those kind of people. I mean, you know, in that case, it was, you know, it was a great story and, and it was great the way it turned out. And, and the fact that David, you know, I mean, it's a great line, you know, like to say that in that context, it's, it's hysterical. Right. And, uh, um, but personally, like when I got the call from Mike, my assistant location manager, and uh, I was horrified and I, and it was, it's the kind of thing on a less reasonably run production or someone like different than Eileen, the, you know, the sort of top production person there. Um I, I mean, location managers get fired for that. Why didn't you tell them? Why wasn't it clear what kind of show this was when you went in there? You know, because um, that is very expensive to not shoot a scene somewhere that you've paid a fee for and spent half a day and moved to from somewhere else and all the rest, you know, like. Yeah. And um, uh, but, you know, Sopranos, I mean, like we ran into these things all the time where, you know, as the show became popular and uh, people almost looked for us as a target to express their opinions or outrages or to have their say um, in, in opposition to what Sopranos did. Right. And there's always like that delicate balance between work on set and off. This is a really interesting story. Production designers, replacement, who've been an art director on movies I'd worked on in the past, will stick around for all the following seasons. We'll move on to the pilot. Some seasons of successful shows, Sopranos writers themselves run post-Sopranos. On one of these, this deeply experienced and erudite man will get caught up in an instant resulting from the blurring of professional and personal lines that people in power often cross. With one of the longest lasting of our writers now running his own show, solicits the designer's help in decorating his New York home. The designer is put into direct contact with the showrunner's wife, who may be expecting more attention, expresses her dissatisfaction with the way things are going. The designer, complaining to a friend, calls the showrunner's wife, among other things, a schnorr. That's a Yiddish word, meaning more or less a parasite. Particularly pointed, perhaps, as the designer is not Jewish, but the wife is. He accidentally sees Caesar on this emailed complaint. He is not asked back for that show's second season, and though he's already in talks with David about designing his 2012 feature film, Not Fade Away, he is dropped from the project. The designer, understandably upset by events and momentarily uncertain about his future, soon makes a full recovery, including Grand Period series and Scorsese features, for one of which he gets an Academy Award nomination. You don't list the person's name, so I know you don't want to say it, but can you just tell me what the Scorsese movie is? So, no. <laughs> I was like, give me the Scorsese movie, because then I can just look it up. Oh, and go, okay, that's what it is. Yeah, most of the, the I mean, I, I, you know, I tried to be somewhat um, uh, delicate about non-public people using their names or not. And um, so that was the case of that. But yeah, I, I mean, I certainly ran it across more than 10 times, um, you know, people in power in the film business using their positions for personal gain or personal favors or, you know, like really things that I think, I think you shouldn't do, but also that used to be way more common and, and uh, I think are more frowned upon nowadays with the heavy um, HR and harassment and, 
and um, corruption kind of overseers that you have from studios. Uh, it's always interesting when guest directors will show up. Of course, Peter Bogdanovich was later in the show and then eventually directed an episode. At one point, someone's yammering on the phone. He says, sorry, guys, that was Nicholson. He goes on and on and right. on and on. Right. Uh, Mike Figgis, of course, the great director leaving Las Vegas. He did an episode which I totally yeah. forgotten about. And Lee Tamahori, yeah. who I, I love once were Warriors and oh, the what Edge. A great film. Yeah. yeah. And he's on the show, but not not acclimating well. He's ignoring the pilot's wide and low angle aesthetic for his preferred longer lens look. He also arrives with a young female assistant while scouting, stays by his side, causing assumptions to be made and looks to be exchanged. We pay close attention when six or six or so years later, during the filming of one of the latest Soprano seasons, news about Tamahori's arrest breaks. He's evidently offered to perform a sexual act on an undercover L.A. cop for cash. Tamahori is described as being wearing a tight dress when arrested. Among the informative insights coverage of the incident affords is that Tamahori reportedly favors latex. Well, <laughs> yeah. That was one of those stories I had forgotten until you were like, oh, that's right. He did get arrested for that. But yeah. What was your reaction? Because it didn't sound like he got along great with everybody. Like, What was your reaction on the no. set when you guys tell the story? I mean, we got a lot of laughs out of it. I mean, you know, I don't know. That's maybe cruel, but, you know, <laughs> you're in the middle of this stuff. Um, you know, it was, yeah, he was um, an unusual presence. I mean, he was, a, you know, like a had a couple of big features and a great movie once for warriors. Right. And then he got this arrest and we kind of remembered him, you know, kind of, um, uh, it's not really fondly, but he made an impression when he was there because of, you know, bringing a, like a, an attractive young assistant, which no one, no, I don't know if any other director showed up with their own assistant and <laughs> took him or her around with them. And, um, and he was a little, you know, disengaged or distant, you know, like a lot of times, you know, directors have different personalities, but usually if you're a guest director, you know, or, a, um, you know, a, a for hire director, you you make some effort to ingratiate yourself and get along with people. And he, he didn't really, I mean, he wasn't unpleasant at it by any means. Uh, and then he had a, a way he wanted to shoot, which was, which I do remember. I don't remember the exact words, but that it, David did, it expressed displeasure about that. I mean, you know, it was pretty clear, and I, I, I wasn't part of the initial meetings with directors, and or if there was a kind of a, a um, plan laid down of you know, like we don't move the camera a lot. We don't do handheld cameras. I've heard that a few times. And, and we don't, we like wider lenses. I mean, you look at the pilot, that's the model. That's a, always the model for a TV show. And David directed the pilot. And, and um, you try to, you know, set the look and keep within the ballpark unless there's like unusual scene. Yeah, and I like the fact you point out the returning directors, the guys who are the regulars, they could figure out a way to fit within that model but add their own flourishes, whether it's Alan Coulter yes. or John Patterson, guys like that. A great story about Todd yeah. Kessler, 26-year-old Harvard grad. You know, he writes a couple episodes but then doesn't get along with David. He even co-wrote the uh, season two finale. Later on, does damages and confesses that the manipulative and demanding boss, Glenn Close, played by damages, had a bit of David Chase in her. When told Kessler's version, complete with its overtones of Freud and betrayal, Chase says dryly, I might have had more on my mind than he did. <laughs> it also brings up a memory yeah. of riding in the scout bed with Todd, being impressed he was reading a John Updike novel, the kind of thing you rarely see around a film production, reading, period. I mean, literary or not. I mentioned to Terry Winner, Terry's terse comment about his colleague's taste in literature is, maybe he should be reading a book about the mob instead. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly there was stuff going on and maybe a conversation going on with the writers that I wasn't privy to. And I just caught occasional, you know, lines or, you know, like, um, um, I don't know, hints at where, where things were headed or what the feeling was. I mean, I think, you know, like I think Todd did get along with David for a while. And then, and, and I think he, you know, I think it's the book difficult men about like these show prominent showrunners in the first boom of you know sort of the classic cable shows and david's one of them and um 
Matt Weiner, who was a writer on Sopranos, was one of them, and and you know some other guys, maybe Aaron Sorkin. I don't I don't know who who else was in in that book, but they tell that story um, about you know Todd and how kind of I think it's in that book how surprised he was when he was told he was going to get let go, mm-hmm. and I think. Um, got a second chance and then got let go eventually. And he, and Todd always talks about it. And, you know, I do say in the book, like I like Todd and, and um, I liked him to the extent that I knew him, which was a, in a similar way to all these guys. Like I was not at their level. And, um, and that we love Tana, my wife and I loved uh, bloodline. I mean, we loved that show and I think he's gone on to do like really good stuff. So, you know, it's not always like it, it didn't work out all the way through with Sopranos, but clearly didn't slow him down. Yeah. A couple more for you. There's obviously a little, yeah, exactly. <laughs> a little speed bump in the road. Uh, a couple more for him. We'll yeah. get you back into a uh, life in Thailand there. Um, I love Barry Sonnenfeld because I've had him on the podcast when he wrote his fantastic book, which is really funny. And yeah. uh, <laughs> it's just, he's such a character. It's so neurotic and unique. And so I was thrilled when you had an entire chapter on Barry. One of my favorite parts of the book is, Talking about Tommy Lee Jones and, um, you know, talking about how people have to work with him. And at one point, Barry says, as an explanation for Jones's crankiness and bad temper, you'd act like an asshole, too, if you woke up every day with a splitting headache from last night's drinking and you'd get surly and impatient every afternoon when you're itching to get the next night's drinking going. Um, Barry is such a unique character. It sounds like he's, he's, you know, high maintenance at times is probably a way to put it. But at the same time, I think he's a really talented guy. It seems like you guys had an amusing relationship back and forth. It was fun. I mean, he was really fun. He, I found him hysterical and, 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 you know, really entertaining and, um, and you know, a character, a big character. And, uh, and yeah, fun to work with. I mean, I didn't work, you know, like I worked with him a couple of times, but, and one of the jobs that didn't end up happening, or at least for me and, and, and for him um, in the end. Uh, but yeah, he was great. I mean, he was just so funny. He would say, I mean, I don't know. I hope those things that I quoted come across as funny as they were, but you know, when you would drive down a road and that, you know, like a New York road that's chewed up and showing (laughs) cobblestones and wood planks and, you know, broken pavement and who knows what else and, you know, and pipes and barriers like, only in New York would they call this a road. It was just like <laughs> he would just come up with this stuff. It was hysterical. I mean, and it was constant with him, you know. He, he when he was, and even when he was like, I tell the story about when he thought he was having a heart attack on the set of uh, Men in Black Two, and you know, and being a location manager, like sometimes I get involved in these, you know, emergency situations. Like you're part of that. Um, a chain of sort of responsibility or like where to, what hospital you go to all that. And, um, you know, he's like thinking he's having a heart attack and gets taken away from set. And he like is walking into the hospital and cracking jokes. Like at, when he, like he sees, <laughs> like I've tried to clear the way a little so we can get him right in. And, and he's like, uh, Mark, you're here. It's so nice to see you. You know, like, it, like, it's just like Barry, <laughs> you know, um, yes, it was a trip. Yeah. Um, last one for you, because I live, I'm, I'm a transplant to New Jersey. I, I'm actually Canadian, but then I lived in Connecticut for years, and now I live in North Jersey. So I, my specific question to you, as a location manager of the Sopranos, because immediately upon moving here five years ago, went, made sure I saw the Bada Bing, didn't go inside, just paid homage in Lodi, New Jersey. Yeah. Went to Caldwell, of course, saw the house. Is there any stuff that happened around where I live? I live in Hohokus. I'm right next to Ridgewood. Wyckoff. Was there anything that you guys shot from the Sopranos around my area specifically, or at least had a chance of shooting? Hohokus, I think, and Ridgewood, I, I'm not sure we got to those towns. I mean, some towns like were a little tricky to film in. Mm-hmm. Um, they were a little less permissive of filming. Um, and I, I know we drove through all those towns and then would stop in the good restaurants <laughs> in Ridgewood. And, and there were a few in Hohokus, I remember, too. Um, really nice town. But not they weren't, you know, Sopranos, I mean, strangely had an aesthetic that was, you know, like 
newer, more blown up, the Johnny Sack house, you know, the Tony right. Soprano house. They weren't into the sort of classier, more, um, you know, turn of the century or, or Victorian or like, I don't know, you know, Americana kind of houses. They were into the nouveau riche kind of thing. And, yeah. and, um, and then more the industrial Carney Lindhurst, right. um, C-Caucus. and then David had spent time in Verona. Some of his childhood, I think his father's hardware store was there, you know, like there were certain sentimental, I think, um, just, just, um, decisions to of where to search and where not to search and um so uh, yeah i don't think so i mean we mm. were in paramus a bunch yeah. we were in fairlawn a bit um and uh but not those ritzier bergen county <laughs> towns <laughs> All right, well paramus is seven minute drive we go to shake jack there all yeah, the time so paramus I'll, I'll drive. Is close and okay, we paramus did, is close but yeah <laughs> we did spend some time there well, it's funny too. I love the mention of Patterson as well because my wife loved the Middle Eastern food there is unbelievable. Al Basha is yeah. like the, the greatest hummus yes. in like America. It's incredible. So I like yeah, the fact great, you mentioned great Patterson. Middle Eastern food there. Yeah. Well, yeah. my father was from there and yeah. and grew up there, and yeah, and I spent a lot of time there as a kid, and then on Sopranos <laughs> and on the movie The Hurricane. I, oh, know, that's I right. Talked about it. Yeah, the late Norma Jewison, um, yeah. and that was obviously set in Patterson. Yeah, that's um, really cool. Yeah. All right, Mark Hamon. Uh, once again, the book is called On Locations, Lessons Learned from My Life on Set with the Sopranos and in the Film Industry. He's also the executive producer of The White Lotus. Again, he's knee-deep right now in, in season three. It's a great book. Honestly, Mark, I really learned a lot about location Thank managing and, and just how tough it can be, like, you know, in between seasons. You don't know how long David Chase is going to take. You, you're stuck in a certain position. How hard is it to get promoted? Like, I really, I gained a lot of respect for the job itself and uh, thrilled for all your great. success. And, and thanks for an excellent book. Thank you. Great to talk. Thank you once again to Mark. He was awesome. And uh, once again, I appreciate his time coming to us from Thailand. Make sure you support the White Lotus and go pick up his book on locations. Good stuff from Chris Cody as always and the entire crew. Again, we are back. Oscars when it comes watch to the Oscars. party. Oscars watch party is coming. Hopefully chop it down to two. That reminds <laughs> me, Hanks on the pod says, he goes, the best words you can ever hear in a film center, we're not going to need you today. Because everyone everyone thinks that actors want to work. I'm like, no. He goes, you have like a 4.45 a.m. crew call, and you show up, and they go, oh, actually, Mr. Hanks. And you go, no, please, call me Tom. Okay, I'm sorry, Tom. Um, you know, we're doing some other stuff there, and they're kind of late with the lights. We're not going to need you till like noon. And you go, oh, my God, heaven. g is like, the best. Because even better, they go, you get there, and it's 5 a.m. They go, I'm so sorry. They should have told you we're not going to need you today. I'm like, no problem. There's, there's nothing better than a day off on a movie set. I don't have to work 16 hours today. I'm in. So with that in mind let's try to get this three-hour pre-show in yes. two hours mm -hmm. keep that in mind uh thank you as always for supporting the podcast next week we're going to have a director talking with oppenheimer with the first name christopher pretty big news until then i'll see you at the movies Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.